0: Uh, The second scripture reading from today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village, where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Thanks be to God. Or with the word of the Lord. (laughs) There's been many a moment when I have also read whatever's bold, (laughs) forgetting, oh no, I'm not the bold reader in this setting. Good morning. I'm Kara, if you don't know. Um, I'm on staff here at Genesis, and welcome to those of you who are watching online. Um, Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. Um, If you hadn't yet heard, um, the pastoral search team and the Genesis elders announced on Friday that um, I've been offered the role of lead pastor here at Genesis, which... I'm going to do that. What was it, Sally Field? You like me. You really like me. Um, I am of a generation that remembers, you know, that culturally. Um, Anyway, it's not official yet. Genesis members will vote in two weeks. So regardless of Steve's awesome Facebook post from yesterday, (laughs) um, that'll be official. And all of you who are members at Genesis will have an opportunity to be like, thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, Look for more information soon. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Bob. Yeah, if we could, let's just, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So often in in a church setting, when you call a new pastor, you have often like time to get to know that new person because they're like an unknown entity, right? Um, But since I've already been here on staff for a couple of years, many of you already kind of know me a bit. Um, But I thought that um, I would take the chance this morning to um, start with, looking at our portion of Scripture today, Mary and Martha. And then I'm going to take some a little time at the end to share a little bit about my story that perhaps you don't know and like kind of how I approach this beautiful, messy endeavor of the church. Um, so we'll kind of journey together um, along that path, all right? Martha. Martha, Martha, Martha. <laughs> In the Marsha, Marsha. Martha, Martha, Martha. I... Man, I feel her pain. I feel her pain. And if you've ever been the one who is pulling all the weight in that group project, you have likely felt Martha's pain as well. It's frustrating, and every task that you have feels additionally weighted with the burden of that indignity that no one is helping you, right? Whether by choice or by circumstance, I have been a lifelong Martha. So. I'll be honest, I take a little exception with Jesus' response to her, right? I mean, sure, she could sit down and listen, just like her sister Mary. But Jesus, don't you also want to have dinner? Aren't you also wanting to eat? But our God is dynamic. And our sacred text of Scripture is dynamic as well, even in stories we have heard before. Each day brings with it an opportunity to hear a story anew, because what if the Holy Spirit has some newness in it for us? Even if it's something that we've heard time and time again? Or perhaps it's a story that you've set aside because you didn't like how Jesus responded. Like myself. <laughs> That's my spoiler. Um, this morning I want you to I want to invite you to consider if there's anything fresh for you in these old, old stories. The challenge with Mary and Martha is that they, they can easily become two caricatures the worker, and the contemplative. And as if women need any more circumstances to be pitted against one another, here we have the story of Mary and Martha, which is often used to kind of create these polarized images of women's roles in churches. Passive versus active, structured roles about hospitality versus education. Martha's often portrayed as this kind of cartoonish notion of the worried woman who's just fussing over silly things. Her story was likely more complex than that, right? All of our stories are. She invites Jesus into her home, her home, which is notable for a first-century woman to be the head of her household. If she weren't, they would be inviting Jesus to her husband's home. That's what we would learn. Though we know little else about her circumstances, we do know that she feels comfortable talking directly to Jesus. We know that she and her sister, Mary, and their brother, Lazarus, are friends with Jesus. And we can also consider that her work is also um, an image of discipleship, because hospitality is discipleship. When Jesus sent out the 70 disciples earlier in Luke, he told them to expect and accept hospitality from others. And later in Luke, when the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest— Jesus defines great discipleship in terms of serving others. And I loved this quote from a commentary this week. We don't have to make Martha's work into something lesser in order to understand a point that Luke might be trying to make about Mary and her work. So last week when Dan preached, we heard a story about the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan embodies love for the neighbor. And in today's passage, Jesus praises Mary for her love of listening and learning from him. For both of those people, it would be considered culturally inappropriate for them to act as they did, tending to someone in need or sitting and learning from men. And yet both of these people, the Samaritan and Mary, are held up as images of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And that really is one of my favorite things about Jesus. And kind of the reason I, man, that I keep going on this life of faith is that The stories that we have of Jesus are where he turns things on their head. Everyone expects one thing and then Jesus says, Oh, wait just a minute. And he does it here again. In Jesus, there is liberation and newness. Where cultural constraints prohibit women from learning, Jesus comes and welcomes Mary to listen and learn from him. And perhaps it's one of the greatest gifts that we can give to the rest of the world when we communicate that the God we follow breaks the restrictions that we put on one another. Brian Peterson, who's a ELCA pastor and seminary professor said, the church needs to be set free for faithful listening and discipled violation of cultural assumptions so that we can love the strangers and the sojourners in our midst in order that we might too sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what he has to say. So I want us to consider that the word distracted is kind of that key um, moment in these verses. The word distracted, translated from the original Greek, oh, I hate it when I do this. I practice it, and then when I'm going to say it, it sounds so dumb. <laughs> My family laughed at me when I practiced it in front of them, too. Perispao is the Greek, um, which brings to mind the idea of being pulled or dragged in many different directions. Dr. Elizabeth Johnson points out in her commentary, Martha's attention to serving and hospitality isn't the problem. It's the distraction that takes away from this important act of hospitality, attention to the presence of Jesus, attention to the guest. Martha gets pretty bold in her distractions and in her displeasure. I mean, imagine it. It's such a not Minnesota thing to do, right? You're like, you're at the event, and the hostess is calling out her sibling in front of everybody and then goes and gets the guest of honor and is like, are you going to help me right here? Martha, as I often say, is just getting a little bit spicy, and Jesus is like, uh, okay. Um, at Genesis, we engage in all plays, meaning that we value the voice of the chorus, rather than the voice of a soloist. And so occasionally we'll um, ask questions that offer opportunities for you all to speak aloud um, into our inquiries. So for my first all play today, I'm curious, what are your distractions? What keeps you from metaphorically sitting at the feet of Jesus? What distracts you in life? And Josh, since this question was your idea, I hope you do have an answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sit in the front row, you get... <laughs> anyway, what are your distractions? What keeps you from sitting at the feet of Jesus? Yeah, Bob. You that I do well. Anything you do well. Hmm. wow, that is so, oh, I'm like, yes, (laughs) speak that word, Bob, I know, (laughs) oh, Josh, now you have to follow that, oh, no, I'm just kidding, just kidding, Um, yeah, Bob, that is so great, anything that, oh, I got to do this for the podcast, I got to remember to do that, Um, since you all can't hear Bob on the recording, Bob had a great word about how um, anything he does well is a distraction, because it boosts his own image of self to the point where, I assume, you feel like you don't need to spend time with God, right? What else distracts you? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, instant access to technology from Dan, yeah. Your own shortcomings keep you distracted. Thanks, John. Things on the whiteboard on your fridge. Now, is that is that a task list is the whiteboard? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. The what? Sorry? The quote-unquote American. The American dream, Nate. I'm curious about, yeah, curious about that. Inability to say no. Inability to say no. Oof. I feel that. That's, that's, that's but okay. but was, right. Hmm hmm Jane said she got wrapped up in worrying, a spiral of worrying, and then just forgot that she could take that moment to pray and take a deep breath and hmm. I think for me, um, sound actually is a big distraction, so like if I'm trying to focus, this is why meditation is like real hard for me. But sound, like any kind of sounds, and then I, it just like triggers my brain, and I'm suddenly off in another direction. And um, there are any multitude of things, hard things, good things, um, caring things, right? Things that can keep us distracted from sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I often find that we can get burnt out on the work of the church because our balance gets off, right? Like we attend more meetings or we undertake too many tasks or we've felt like we've had to do one too many obligations, but those have been without purpose, or without God's leading, or without it being infused with joy and rest and simplicity. So similarly, we may need to notice, right, when we've spent so much time focused on the doing, even the good doing, right, the good things that we could do, that we haven't taken that time to be attuned to the other piece of sitting with Jesus. Just like if you've been just sitting and listening to Jesus, all you've been doing is is being contemplative and meditative, maybe then you're missing out on God's invitation to go out and do the very good work that God is doing in the rest of the world. So what might it mean for us to release distraction and live in the presence of Jesus? Martha's actions are important. Hospitality is a foundational component of discipleship. Mary's actions are important. Learning from Jesus is a foundational component of discipleship. It isn't about choosing one path or another. It's about abiding in the presence of Jesus within all of it. So my second all play is how do you experience God's presence? God's presence often being such an intangible concept. But how do you experience God's presence? Nature? Nature? Yeah, Jake. Sorry, What? A gut feeling, yes, intuition, Cassandra. Quiet. Quiet. The, sunrise. the sunrise. You get to see that sunrise a lot, don't you, Enoch? Every day, every day at work, you're up. Mm-hmm. Music. Music. Mm-hmm. Joy in others. Joy in others. Mm. Tears. Tears. Thanks, Bob. Tears. Mm. Here in this space. Thanks, Nate. A constant smile. Hi, Willie online. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus comes to turn us from important but secondary things. It is good and helpful and faithful to attend to needs. And the gift of God's presence is an essential part of that life. And we need God's Spirit to enliven those actions, to inspire us as disciples. So how might we consider this week what it means to be in the presence of the divine? Where can we take notice to pause and to listen? To slow the frenetic worry and the details and the noise and the constraints of this world and sit and learn from Jesus? Because we do get this gift and a task, right? There is action necessary for the good work of sharing God's love with others. And yet we don't want to be distracted from the reason why we engage in all of that sharing with one another as our mission at genesis states we are ordinary apprentices of jesus seeking to love god love self and love others and perhaps in our apprenticeship in our practicing of our faith we would do well to consider when our own action or contemplation becomes a little unbalanced so i want to invite you this week to consider how you're both listening And doing receiving and serving breathing in and breathing out so we're gonna practice that for just a moment the breathing in and breathing out let's take a deep breath picture your lungs filling with oxygen as you inhale feeling your body relax as you exhale let's do that one more time inhale Exhale. So now you get to know a little bit more about me. This is the most me-ness I've ever put into a sermon time, so <clears throat> it was tough. But it's mostly God's story through, through my own lens. So, So I was a kindergartner at vacation Bible school. I was eating finger jello. A kid got stung by a bee. People told me about Jesus, and he seemed like a really nice friend. It was easy, and maybe a little strange, to say I believed in a God that I couldn't see. But I loved Jesus and the church, even from those early days. There seemed to be a lot of mystery and stained glass, and we repeated these same words together every week, and even as a kid, that felt comforting. Faith was a quiet affair. I learned to play hymns on the piano so my grandma could sing along. I read strange and weird and confusing stories in the Bible. It was easy and good until it wasn't. By the time I was confirmed my freshman year of high school, I was a done with the church that we were a part of. The beauty and the mystery I'd experienced was overshadowed by this very disconnected gathering of people who didn't seem to live out any of Jesus' kindness or compassion or love to one another. In fact, the pastor who presided over my confirmation, he didn't even pronounce my name right, right? So I was like, well, this isn't, we've been together for three years. Like, I feel like this is not a place of belonging for me. And I'm not sure how my parents felt about it at the time, but I distinctly remember that moment, sitting in the back of our car, driving home from a Christmas program, the windows all iced over. And I said, I cannot go back there. I said, I thought the church was supposed to be about something more. So a year later, and I'm deeply involved in this new congregation. This one, it felt like such community. It felt like a place where people were trying their best to love one another well. But that type of earnest community also came with another component, a lot of certainty and a lot of rules. There were so many rules, so much to guard yourself, so much of the world that you had to keep your life separate from. And whether it was my authentic and deep desire for community or my emotional and intellectual development at the time as a teenager, the idea of classifying the world into black or white felt so grounding. God's truth was capital T truth, and it was something I could very easily hang my hat on. And I jumped into that with as much force as a 16-year-old girl who loved Jesus could. I think I've mentioned before how really cool I was. <laughs> it was easy to know if you were in or out. And you were in or out not by your, because of your family of origin or because you were a star athlete. You were in or out simply by the actions you took. And that felt like, well, I can, I can do those actions, right? You too could belong if you were repentant enough. And that felt God-honoring and good until it didn't. Because I still had that longing for mystery. I had that desire to ask questions, to consider what if. But it didn't feel safe to ask those questions there. In fact, asking those questions got you put on the prayer list. And I know you got put on the prayer list because I was in charge of the prayer list. So I know (laughs) that you got put on the prayer list. sat with my dad one day on our white living room couch, and mom, if you're watching this, how brave of you for owning white couches, I don't know, my sister and I must have been very tidy, I guess, we were talking about creation, which at, the time of, uh, at that point in my faith construct meant that I saw the, the earth was very young, right, God had a literal 24-hour, seven days of creation, and the fossils were just there to test us, right, they were just there to test us. And my dad, whose default mode was always question everything, asked me simply, why couldn't God create the world and still do that in millions, billions of years? He said, why couldn't God create things and use science? And I definitely wanted to push back, because I had some good talking points from the creationism seminar I'd just gone to. But I had to admit he had a point, right? Even then I could feel I could sense again that this garment of faith that I was wearing didn't fit well anymore like the Jesus t-shirt I bought at the Christian bookstore I worked at it felt ill-fitting and worn at the time and by the time I hit college I saw this world that was far bigger and more complicated and more nuanced than my world had previously been I learned about source traditions in compiling the scriptures I had a male professor ask me, why couldn't God call women to be pastors too? Well, why indeed, right? I lived in this bustling city that had poverty and wealth, and I spent Friday nights at homeless shelters. I considered the questions of, why can't God work in this way or that? And my proximity to people who were in pain, whose lives were different than mine, to people who possessed a different set of beliefs, In proximity to the people that I was taught to fear or pity or convert, it made it really, really exponentially difficult to find God in just those narrow boxes that I had constructed for him to be in. God's presence seemed to be in all the places I was told to avoid. In the years to follow as I married and went to seminary, I re-entered those sacred spaces that I missed from my childhood. I started to see that the role of the pastor was not simply the person who had to find the most correct and precise answer for the best sermon, but instead someone who offered an invitation, not a coercive or a manipulative invitation, but an invitation of curious questions, one who leads out of hospitality and kindness, one who creates space for mystery and wonder and lament and doubt, I started seeing questions not as something to fear, but as something to welcome. And in the midst of walking alongside my dad's cancer journey, or our infertility, or our dear friend's suicide, or the constant turmoil of our world the last few years, this has felt true and honoring and centering to me, that God resides with us in uncertainty, that the love of Jesus and the mystery of God and the wild wind of the Holy Spirit have woven threads throughout the cosmos. The questions and the rage and the doubts and the joy are all a part of this journey of faith. As my friend Steve likes to say, it all belongs. Several years ago, I had a conversation with a friend whose passion for LGBTQIA inclusion caused me to ask a lot of questions. I had to consider what it might be possible that it might be possible for God to work in new ways, and in unexpected ways. And that terrified me. Because it meant that new threads were being woven in, and those new threads would cause a lot of disruption and disappointment and pain. My theological convictions worked for me until they didn't. Until I saw how they didn't work for the whole of God's children. And that's why I'm here at Genesis. Because that, this is a community that creates space for others. A community who worships the Jesus who came to upend systems of oppression and to restore the brokenness of, the, of our world. A community, community who is every day striving to make space for the questions. The questions that we sometimes whisper in our quiet moments. The questions that some of us scream in, out in protest against injustice the questions that offer an invitation to one another into the mystery and goodness of God. And so I ended up here with this faith community that was willing to say we are welcoming and affirming of all people. This evolution of my faith, this weaving of questions and sacred ritual, of community care and of mystery, of stained glass windows and the Eucharist table, of God's presence and my own doubt, of centering Jesus and honoring the image of God in each of us. This, this is the tapestry of my faith. Amen.